So many people think that if you sin, that somehow God holds it against you, that somehow if you accumulate enough sins after salvation, that you lose salvation, things like that. And it all boils down to the fact that people don't have an adequate concept of how sinful sin is, because when you really understand how sinful we are, you recognize that there's nothing that we can do about it. That we are always going to, because we have a sin nature, we are always going to be plagued by sin. There will always be a struggle with sin. And as we tend to superficially define sin in terms of certain heinous, overt sins like murder or adultery, rape, violent criminal activity, lying, certain overt sins like that. But the Bible really points out that the most insidious sins are the sins of the mental attitude. Sins like bitterness and anger, jealousy, fear, worry, all of these things just fragment our souls on the inside. And when you come to understand that your worst sins are sins that are not seen, that are not overt, then it becomes really clear that we can do nothing to solve our sin problem, that Christ paid it all. And because Christ paid it all, then we have a solution not only to our pre-salvation sins, but we have a solution to the post-salvation sins. That in, in light of Christ's death on the cross, that whatever sins we commit after salvation, they're already paid for in full. We don't have to impress God with anything. We don't have to be uh, concerned about those sins in the sense that they uh, might destroy that eternal relationship with God. We should be concerned about them because we will suffer from them under the law of volitional responsibility that whatever a man, whatsoever a man reaps that with our souls, that he will also reap. And we also need to be concerned about our post-salvation sins in light of divine discipline. But we do not have to worry about those sins in light of losing our eternal relationship with God. That has been determined. And the basis for our forgiveness is the same as the basis for our salvation. It's the finished work of Christ. So John wrote in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess, and all that means is to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins completely. Now, sometimes we don't want to forgive ourselves and then we get into further mental attitude sins of guilt, refusing to accept or believe that God has forgiven us and we just go right back into that uh, downward spiral of carnality. We have to break it, isolate those sins, realize that once we confess them to God, then that's it. We're back in fellowship. That sin is no longer an issue in terms of our spiritual life and we can move forward. The grace that God gives us is always related to judgment. And we're to judge ourselves, 1 Corinthians 11 says. Uh, and that's what uh, we do when we confess our sins. We judge ourselves, and then in God's grace, even if there is enduring divine discipline or uh, negative suffering or consequences as a result of those sinful decisions, then we know that God in His grace is going to uh, bless us and that suffering is no longer suffering for discipline. It is now suffering for blessing because as we apply Scripture, the problem-solving devices, the ten stress busters we've been studying, then it just uh, accelerates our spiritual growth. So confession is just very important, difficult for people to grasp the grace of God, that Christ did it all. They just want to help God. But we can't help Him because He doesn't want it. He did it all. So let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship and then we'll begin our study. Our Father, we do thank You for Your Word. Your Word is absolute, infallible, inerrant truth. Everything that it says was written for our benefit. And so, Father, we worship You now 
by taking the time from our schedules and our days to submit to the teaching of your word. Because nothing is more important than to know your thoughts, your thinking, so that we may think your thoughts after you, so that our thinking will be dominated by the divine viewpoint of Scripture. Because we recognize that we were saved for a purpose, and that purpose is to glorify you, and to glorify you in the angelic conflict, and that comes only through spiritual maturity, and that comes only through thinking doctrine. So, Father, we take the time to look at your word now because it is the most important aspect of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're continuing our study of James 1.5, the prayer for wisdom. And we are in the middle of the doctrine of wisdom. We're studying the principle that wisdom has its source in God alone and is set over against all human viewpoint systems of thought. So the Bible represents two categories of thinking. Divine viewpoint on the one hand, human viewpoint on the other. Proverbs says that as a man thinketh in his heart, that is, in his mind so is he, and there is a way that seems right to men, but the end thereof is death. So human viewpoint does not produce life, it produces death even though to us it seems so good and so, so much like common sense that that seems like the right thing to do and we base our thinking on our limited human viewpoint. But divine viewpoint is the perspective of Scripture. It's a unified perspective. God has told us everything we need to know for life and godliness. And throughout the Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, it presents one unified perspective of life, and this is the divine viewpoint. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 down through chapter 2, the Apostle Paul gives an extended dissertation on the distinction between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. And the classic example begins with... Um, of divine viewpoint starts at the cross. That the cross to man is foolishness. It's something that does not add up to human systems of thought. Human systems of thought base their ultimate authority for knowledge in one of four arenas. Arena number one is rationalism. Rationalism begins with the value of human mentality it proceeds on the basis of rigorous logic from the starting point of principles apparent to the mind alone. Empiricism. Empiricism begins with experiential data, the data of the, of the senses, sight, hearing, sound, touch, and builds a its system of knowledge and authority based upon that through a rigorous use of logic. It's not logic that's the problem. This is one of the things dominating thought today, is, especially in the colleges and classrooms and the universities, what's called postmodernism. Now, postmodernism means the, the type of thinking that has come after modernism, so it's a reaction to modernism. I was reading uh, an article yesterday that came from... Uh, Discovery magazine that has to do with the, uh, it was a, written by an evolutionist, but they were talking about how the attack on evolution is now not only coming from the Christian right, but it is coming from the liberal college classroom left. Because of the liberal college classroom left, they have also thrown out um, the use of all logic is leading to any truth. In fact, what they'll say is that logic is just a product of the white European male and it's a system to enslave and, and bring others into bondage. It is uh, homophobic and it is uh, uh, chauvinistic. So we need to do away with all logic. Well, if you throw out logic, then you're going to what? Throw out the basis for all science. Now, we laugh because we're coming at this from a, human view, from a divine viewpoint system and yet we dare not laugh because... This is taken uh, with much respect in the highest levels of, of academia in our country. 
and it's influencing the thinking of legislatures and legal theorists and politicians uh, right and left. In fact, we have a White House that's dominated by people who think within a postmodern grid, and we can just see the implications of that. So while we laugh because we think it's silly and foolish, we ought to weep also because it is going to destroy, I think, uh, Western civilization because it is attacking the very roots of our, of our culture and our civilization. So uh, postmodernism is a reaction to all logic and uh, has a lot in common really with the third system of knowledge which is almost an uh, 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 anti-system and that's mysticism. And mysticism is an anti-system because it's based on irrationalism. The way you know truth is just through intuitive flashes. How you feel, how you think things ought to be. So it's very, very subjective. And then the fourth system is revelation. That God has spoken, the infinite God has spoken into the finite creation and spoken to mankind to explain uh, how things are so that man can understand everything. All of these systems are ultimately based on faith. Faith in human reason, faith in uh, human experience, faith in human mysticism, faith in man's ability to properly understand and interpret reality on his own, apart from any help from God. But Scripture, the object of faith, is on the infinite, omnipotent, uh, immutable God who has spoken in human history. Now, all of these systems were exemplified and alive and well on the planet when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians. In fact, they were battling a lot of mysticism at that time because it had become very popular in the Greek religions. And that's the whole background. If you don't understand Greek mysticism and the mystery religions, then you're going to have a hard time understanding the problems that the Corinthian church got into with tongues and with all the problems with the spiritual gifts. And that's because they, uh, speaking in tongues, in terms of just uh, ecstatic utterance, was a common practice in mysticism. And what happened in Corinth was that these believers who were saved out of this pagan background where they normally did this as a part of their means of getting in touch with God, when they heard Paul uh, talk about uh, speaking in tongues, they didn't understand it as speaking foreign languages, legitimate human languages, uh, under the power of the Holy Spirit, that it was a miracle. They just thought it was what they had been doing in their paganism all along. So they got everything confused because they had not let their uh, cognitive processes, their mentality, be renewed. Romans 12, we are to renew our minds. We are to restore our thought processes, processes according to doctrine. Well, they were still thinking in terms of mysticism, so they were screwing everything up. Uh, rationalism was ex- exemplified by the philosophical systems of, Aristotle, of, um, of Plato. Empiricism by his uh, student Aristotle. And so these thought forms were very prevalent in the Greek culture that Paul addressed here. And so he says that the word of the cross in uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is to those who are perishing Foolishness. Why? Because they come at it on the basis of human rationalism and human empiricism. So their conclusion is that this is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. God will destroy the human viewpoint systems of knowledge. We went on last week and we studied down through here. Key passages like Romans, I mean, like 1 Corinthians 1.21, for since in the wisdom of God, His divine viewpoint is the basis for all creation. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, that is, on the basis of rationalism and empiricism, you cannot come to a knowledge of God. The world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message. Human viewpoint always thinks divine viewpoint is foolishness. Human viewpoint rejects all divine viewpoint. Human viewpoint cannot comprehend 
or understand divine viewpoint. And we'll see, understand why in just a minute. Because the issues are spiritual issues. It has nothing to do with intellect. It has nothing to do with education. It has nothing to do with IQ. So if you think that's a problem in understanding doctrine for you, then you're wrong. What we're going to see in the Scriptures tonight is that God has provided a, a spiritual way of learning truth that overcomes all uh, physical, natural uh, handicaps such as limited education, limited IQ. Every believer has equal opportunity to learn the Word of God and to understand it so that they can pursue spiritual maturity. And that's a tremendous encouragement. It doesn't matter what your education is. It doesn't matter what those human limitations might be. What matters is that God has promised that you can learn His Word and it will transform your life. We read down through here. Um, we see passages like uh, verse 22, For indeed Jews ask for signs. Greeks, that's Gentile search for wisdom. Gentiles are always looking for the intellectual solution. But in contrast, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, that is, those who are believers, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now this uses an anthropomorphism. Write this word on the board. I love these big words. You ought to be teaching these to your kids. They can learn them. You may have trouble with it. They'll remember them. Anthropomorphism. From the Greek anthropos meaning man and morphism meaning form. has to do with expressing things in human form. Anthropopathism expresses God's uh, emotions. expresses emotions that God does not actually have in terms of human emotions in order to understand the plans and policies of God. Anthropomorphism express um, God in human form in order, which He does not actually possess in order to communicate to mankind His plans and policies and procedures. It is communicating to man principles about God using human analogy of human life in order to uh, accommodate man's limited frame of reference. It usually refers to God in terms of the hands of God or the eyes of God, expressing it in terms of form that he does not actually possess in order to communicate within the limited frame of reference of mankind eternal principles about God. Verse 25, because the foolishness of God. Well, God is never foolish. But it's just using this phraseology for comparison that even if God were foolish, it would be wiser than anything man came up with. And the uh, weakness of God, but God is never weak, He's omnipotent. But even if God were weak, it would be stronger than anything man could ever imagine. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Why is this? Why would God choose what in terms of human framework is foolish and why does that confound the wise? Confound the wise. It's because the wise put all of their hope and confidence in their, themselves, in the human ability. And that is nothing more than arrogance. That's the same thought that Satan expressed when he said his five I wills and sinned against God, that I will be like the Most High. Man says that the way to greatness is through self-promotion. The way to greatness is through personal achievement and personal effort. And that will impress God. But God says the way to impress God is to be humble. Not to lord it over others as the Gentiles do. To be a servant. Not to be a master. God has subverted the human viewpoint system of priorities and put the emphasis on that which is contra the contradiction to what was exemplified in the satanic rebellion. In Satan's rebellion, you have arrogance, pride, the assertion of, of self-sufficiency in the creature. 
In contrast to that, God has set up a system that demands humility. It demands meekness, which is orientation to God's plan, grace orientation, and sufficiency totally in Christ. And it is the person who excels in this arena that it grows to spiritual maturity and will have a position of leadership and responsibility in the coming kingdom. The person who operates in terms of human viewpoint systems and emphasizing arrogance, pride, and self-sufficiency will become a failure in the spiritual life and will not have anything in the coming kingdom, although they will be there. It's not that they will lose their salvation, but what they are forfeiting is all of the blessings, both in time and in eternity, that God wishes to give to the growing, maturing believer. So God uses that which the world despises in order to elevate and promote His own plan and to demonstrate the failure of the satanic way of thinking. Then we come down to chapter 2. Chapter 2 says, and when I came, and Paul says, and when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, that is in terms of Greek wisdom, human viewpoint wisdom, teaching in the uh, rhetorical style of the Greeks, but he came just explaining the testimony of God. His goal was simple, verse 2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He wasn't going to get distracted into all sorts of arguments related to Greek philosophical speculation. He was going to focus on the key issue. And that's something we should always remember in witnessing. Whenever you're witnessing to somebody, keep the focus on the cross. Never get distracted. There are a lot of issues that can come up. You can get involved in arguments with people. You can get involved in discussions about creation or evolution. You can get involved in discussions about uh, all sorts of moral issues or politics. Or you can get involved in discussions about miracles or what about evil or what about the heathen or all sorts of things. But keep the issue on the cross. That we're sinners and Jesus Christ died on the cross as our substitute. What was Paul's attitude in his ministry? Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. This is just the opposite of the attitude of the arrogant human viewpoint philosopher thinker that the Corinthians were used to, who would come uh, proud of who he was and what his accomplishments were and his great uh, cognitive skills and logical skills. But Paul says he comes in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my, pre- my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. And what we should understand there is the concept of wisdom there must be understood in terms of Greek philosophy. He doesn't come using all of the great rhetorical techniques and skills that had been developed from the uh, 5th century B.C. in Greece. They had tremendous, tremendous schools of rhetoric where they taught public speaking and and debate and discourse. And the Apostle Paul does not come teaching in the same style as the Greeks. He came simply explaining the Scripture. So there was a marked contrast in his style and in his delivery. That purpose clause, verse 5, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Verse 6, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age. So here he starts using wisdom in the sense of divine viewpoint. Yet we do speak wisdom, that is divine viewpoint wisdom, among those who are mature, that is completed. That's our word that we find now and again, and we've studied telios. It doesn't mean perfect, T-E-L-E-I-O-S. It means complete or mature. We do speak divine viewpoint wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, 
nor of the rulers of this age. In 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, that Satan is the prince and power of this age. Nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. It's not a cosmic wisdom. So here we see that human viewpoint is roughly correlated to the thought of Satan and the thought that dominates the cosmic system which is ruled by Satan and his demons. Verse 7, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. Now this is an important word. This isn't a whodunit. When you read the word mystery in the New Testament, this is from the Greek word mysterion. Our English word mystery is simply a transliteration of the, of the Greek word mysterion. And it means that to communicate something which has been hidden, something which has been secret, something which has not been uh, revealed. So it's unrevealed. When we get into the New Testament, we discover that the Old Testament prophets were not aware of the church age or of the doctrine related to the church age. It, God did not reveal them to the, to the Old Testament prophets, but He did reveal them through the apostles in the New Testament. This is the unique doctrines of the church age are classified under this category as the mystery doctrines of the church age. This is the unique divine viewpoint related to the New Testament canon of Scripture, what God has given to us. We speak in a mystery that is related to doctrines never before revealed, the hidden wisdom which God predestined or predetermined before the ages, that is, in eternity past, to our glory. This human viewpoint which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Then we get to verse 9. It's a great passage here. Things which eye has not heard, seen and ear has not heard. That's empiricism. We go back to our different systems of Greek thought. Rationalism bases it on what? On what's in your mind. Empiricism is based on what you see, hear, touch, smell. The sense data. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard. This is doctrine that cannot be discerned on the basis of empiricism. And which have not entered into the heart, that is, the, uh, le- uh, the right lobe, the cardia, the mind of man, the right lobe of the mentality of the soul is the heart. Heart does not refer to the emotion. It refers to the innermost part of the thinking of man. The Bible talks about two arenas of man where thought takes place. The, the nous, and this is it in the Greek, N-O-U-S, and the cardia, the heart. The heart is the innermost part. K-A-R-D-I-A. This is where the deepest thoughts of man take place. Where doctrine is stored in the heart, in the cardia, the right lobe of the mentality of the soul. So these thoughts have not entered into the thinking of man. And that, that refers to rationalism. That these are things that, did, that man cannot come up with on the basis of rationalism. But it comes from revelation. All that God has prepared for those who love Him. Now, all that God has prepared refers to the entire panorama of Bible doctrine in the Scripture. God has prepared it for who? For those who love Him. But not all believers love God. Only those who are advancing in the spiritual life. Relate this to the fortress of the soul that the believer erects through the use of the uh, stress busters. It begins with confession. Every time we get out of fellowship, we run into adversity, we respond wrong, we, we get into mental attitude sins or overt sins. We have to uh, confess our sins, admit them to God. We're back in fellowship. Then we're filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can move forward uh, walking by means of the Spirit who is this power of the spiritual life. The spiritual life is a supernatural way of life and therefore it demands a supernatural basis. Man cannot lead the spiritual life on the basis of the flesh, on the basis of the sin nature. He must do it by walking by means of the Holy Spirit. Then there's the faith rest drill. Doctrinal orientation, grace orientation. As you grow and mature, this is the process you follow, you develop in these areas. 
Then you reach spiritual adolescence with a personal sense of your eternal destiny. Then you develop, begin to develop a more mature personal love for God the Father. That's not to say that at salvation you don't have a small modicum of love for God the Father for His salvation. You understand to some very, very limited degree that He sent His Son to die on the cross for you and, and that you're saved. And to that limited degree, you appreciate that and you respond with a, uh, a very minute speck of love. Just as a newborn baby has no capacity yet to express love to their parents because they haven't grown or matured any, so the newborn believer cannot really love God because he doesn't know God. To love someone, to love God, you have to know the object of your affection. To have personal love for anyone means you know them. If you don't know them, you cannot love them. You may emote a lot. You may be very sentimental. You may have warm, gushy, gooey feelings. But that's not what the Bible refers to as love. What the Bible refers to as love has more to do with the mentality and nothing, if anything, to do with the emotions. So you have to know God in order to love Him. So this is talking about the things, the doctrines that God has prepared for those who love Him. Not all believers, but those who are growing and maturing in their walk with the Lord. Verse 10, For to us, that is believers, God revealed them through the Holy Spirit. Once again, we come back to our principle that the spiritual life in the church age is a supernatural way of life and is uniquely related to the Holy Spirit. It was never this way in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, no one, no one was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There are three things the Bible teaches about the ministry of the Holy Spirit to believers throughout history. In the Old Testament, we have to divide our timeline between Old Testament and New Testament at the cross. Old Testament is the age of Israel. The age of Israel began with the call of Abraham. You have the age of the patriarchs from Abraham to Moses. And then with Moses, the nation is established. They're given their constitution on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, and the rest of the, of the uh, articles related to their uh, uh, judicial system in the rest of Exodus and Leviticus. And up to the cross, you have the Old Testament system based on the law. All you had here is the endowment. Endowment means a temporary ministry of God the Holy Spirit on just a few for the purpose of giving them skill in some arena of leadership related to the nation Israel. Okay? It is a temporary empowerment related to the fulfillment of of some leadership, some arena of leadership in relationship to the nation Israel. People like, um, like Moses as a prophet giving revelation. People like um, Gideon, Samson, Jephthah. These men were just, some of the mistakes that they made were incredible. For example, Jephthah. Now here's a real class act. This guy's raised by pirates out among the Ammonites. Brigands. And he comes back and, and uh, Israel's just a mess. The Midianites have overrun them and had them under their heel for 40 years and oppressed the nation and God is going to use Jephthah. Now, here's, this is grace. It's not dependent on who and what Jephthah is. It's dependent on who and what God is. And the Holy Spirit comes upon Jephthah. And what's the first thing he does? This shows you it's not indwelling, it's not filling. What's the first thing Jephthah does after the Holy Spirit comes on him? God, if you give me victory over the, the, the uh, Midianites, I will sacrifice to you the first thing that comes out of the door of my house when I get home. So he trots home and his daughter runs out the front door to greet him. So after he has victory, takes her out, puts her on an altar and cuts her throat. The endowment of the Spirit gave him the military ability 
to defeat the enemies of Israel. It's not an empowerment related to the spiritual life. That's the point I want to make. It's not related to that. It's related to leadership skills in specific arenas related to, uh, to, to administration of the nation of Israel. Men like David, uh, Saul, and Saul became such a, such a loser and failure because of his uh, rejection of Scripture and refusal to apply doctrine in his life. So the Old Testament had a temporary ministry of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit came upon them or overshadowed them. But basically, it's an endowment ministry for a limited purpose to a limited few. Then in the Old Testament, you have two other doctrines. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the filling. Now, these are true for every single believer at the moment of salvation. The indwelling is permanent. In fact, we're told that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all indwell the believer. God the Holy Spirit's indwelling is related as it is throughout all of history, is related to preparing a place, a dwelling place, a tabernacle or temple for the dwelling of Christ and the Shekinah glory. The filling is something totally different. This is related to the Greek word plerao. We studied a cognate of this on Sunday morning, P-L-E-R-O-O. We studied the cognate um, pleroma. And we saw how the filling of the Holy Spirit is really a, a means, an instrument. We're filled by means of the Holy Spirit. What are we filled with? We're filled with the Word of God. And together, the Scripture says, these are the source of power in the believer's life. One, the Holy Spirit, who makes it tr- divine truth clear to us, enables us to understand it, enables us to apply it, reminds us of it, and what He uses, which is the Word of God. These are the two power options in the believer's life. You must utilize both of them together. They work in tandem. One does not work without the other. And so the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God are the believer's source of power. We live by means of the Spirit of God. And that means that the Christian life, the life in the church age, because the filling of the Holy Spirit is unique to the church age, that the spiritual life in the church age is a unique spiritual life. Never before in human history did a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ have what you have. Never before. In the Old Testament, they did not have the Holy Spirit filling them, teaching them, giving them the ability to learn and apply Bible doctrine. You have so much more. It is incredible, this fantastic spiritual life that we have. This ability to understand doctrine. We have the complete canon of Scripture. Everything we need for life and godliness. This is what we have been provided. This is why it is a unique spiritual life and a unique age. It is radically different. It is a supernatural way of life which requires a supernatural basis, the Holy Spirit. And He does this. He reveals this to us. Verse 10, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For the Spirit, there is the Holy Spirit. He searches into the depths of God. He knows everything in the divine mind because He Himself is omniscient. And then Paul gives an illustration in verse 11. For who among men understands or knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man? Now here, we have a unique shift. Paul uses the word spirit about four different times in this passage. It's very important that we understand the various meanings of the Greek word pneuma. It has many meanings. P-N-E-U-M-A. Its basic meaning is wind or air or breath. And of course, we have it in the English language like a pneumatic drill. 
It operates on, on air, the power of air. Uh, it can also refer to thought or someone's attitude. We use it this way ourselves. We say somebody, there's a, there's a spirit about that person I don't like. I personally don't like that kind of phraseology because it can be confusing because some people today use that and then make that shift over as to some kind of demonic spirit. But there's a spirit about that person. What are we talking about? We're talking about their attitude. And the Bible uses spirit sometimes. It talks about the spirit of bitterness. It's not talking about a demon. Now these crazy people down here who get all caught up in casting out demons and say, well, your problem is you've got a spirit of anger and you've got a spirit of bitterness and you've got a spirit of jealousy and we just got to cast out all those spirits. Come on, brother, come all the way down to the front and we'll slay you in the spirit. You know, the only two people in the Bible who were slayed in the spirit were Ananias and Sapphira. You're a little slow on the uptake there. One or two of you know the Bible caught that. So, pneuma can mean thought or attitude. And it's translated that way sometimes. Other passages, it refers to the human spirit. Other passages, it refers to the Holy Spirit. So, this passage, it uses it about four different ways, so we have to evaluate the context. And here, it refers to thought. The wind keeps blowing my page, and I keep coming down here to look for my look at that verse. And I wait a minute, where did it go? One day I'll get used to these fans in here. For who among men knows the thoughts? And notice that word "thought" is in italics in your English Bible. It's not in the Greek. Who among men knows what's of man except the soul, the spirit, the thought processes? of the man, the soul of the man, which is in him. Even so, that of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. So, compare this verse to the one we studied on Sunday morning in relationship to the revelatory role of God the Holy Spirit. What did John 1.18 say? No one, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten... He has explained Him. Okay, so the only one who's ever revealed God the Father is Jesus Christ. Now, who is it that explains the thoughts of God? It's the Holy Spirit. See the parallel with this verse? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. So it is the Holy Spirit's unique role to teach the thinking of God. Now, what is the thinking of God? Well, we anticipate a little bit. It's in this verse. It's in verse 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that He should instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is Bible doctrine. All that is taught within the canon of Scripture for the believer. That is the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. So, the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals the mind of Christ. Now, verse 12. Now, we have received, we, that is believers, not the Spirit. And here we're talking about it in terms of attitude or mentality. The thought processes. Not the thought processes, not the thinking of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. That is, the Holy Spirit who is from God. For what purpose? That. Hena clause introducing the purpose for the Holy Spirit. That we might know the things freely given to us by God. So that God the Holy Spirit is given to teach us. Okay, back up. This is Operation Z. Over here we have the communicator of doctrine. Pastor teacher, Sunday school teacher, whoever, somebody with a communication gift, maybe a book you're reading, tape you're listening to, something like that communicates doctrine. The Holy Spirit takes that doctrine and makes it clear to the individual. It becomes pneumaticos, spiritual truth, P-N-E-U-M-A-T-I-K-O-S, pneumaticos doctrine. We get that in the very, two verses later, a natural man, look at verse 14, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually 
appraised. Spiritual things, excuse me, I skipped a verse, verse 13, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual pneumaticos with pneumaticos. In other words, God the Holy Spirit takes spiritual concepts, combines them with words, vocabulary. You can't understand concepts apart from words. That's what pneumaticos refers to as spiritual concepts or words. He makes that clear to the individual so that you can perceive it with your mind. The left lobe of the soul. The nous. N-O-U-S. The mind. Your cognitive faculty. And there it becomes gnosis. G-N-O-S-I-S. Academic knowledge. The nous is the staging area. First, you have to understand doctrine academically. You have to have the vocabulary. You have to have the frame of reference. The Holy Spirit has to make it clear to you. Why? Because in verse 14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. You see, the word here for natural is sukikos. P-S-U- C-H-I-K-O-S from the Greek word suke P-S-U-C-H-E which is where we get our English word psyche which is used in psychology. So sukikos has to do with the person who has a soul. See, man when they're created has a body and in that body is a soul. But he doesn't have a human spirit. The human spirit is that which enables you and me as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to understand doctrine. Now, the the human spirit is distinct from the soul, but it works together with the soul. How do you understand doctrine? With your mind. What enables your mind to understand the doctrine? The Holy Spirit makes it clear to the human spirit... The human spirit enables the mentality of the soul to comprehend it. So the spirit and the soul become intertwined, so to speak. The human spirit is not a a separate category in that it operates with a mentality or volition independent of the soul. It is a faculty which enables the human volition, mentality, etc., the human soul to comprehend. you're not going to get to base one in understanding the Bible. Now, what about salvation, you ask? How does the unbeliever understand the Gospel? Well, here you have the pastor teacher, and he communicates the Gospel, or the evangelist communicates the Gospel, and here the Holy Spirit substitutes for a human spirit to make the Gospel clear. That's why we say the Holy Spirit is the sovereign executive of salvation. He is the one working when you are witnessing. It's not up to you to make sure that person understands everything. That's the role of God the Holy Spirit. Your job is simply to make the Gospel clear. As clear as you can make it. You don't have to answer all the questions. You don't have to have a degree in Bible or a degree in evangelism or witnessing to be able to communicate to somebody. You just give them the Gospel and God the Holy Spirit makes it clear. It's amazing how this works. Now, I'm sure that some of you have read a book called Late Great Planet Earth by, by Hal Lindsey. And I'm amazed at how many people that I have run into. In fact, I had a church about this size in Dallas ten years ago. And half the people in that church were saved just from reading Late Great Planet Earth. It's amazing. They just sat down, saw it on the grocery store shelf, thought, well, that's an interesting book. Picked it up, went home and read it, and trusted the Lord. Not all their questions are answered. God the Holy Spirit uses the presentation, the faithfulness of people, makes the gospel clear, and the unbeliever responds. But the natural man, the soulish man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual, that is, 
has a human spirit which enables them to understand doctrine, that if they are understand doctrine, then they can appraise all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has the mind of God of the Lord that he should instruct him? Well, we've sped our way through 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 simply to illustrate the concept that the Bible clearly portrays that there's two ways of thinking, divine viewpoint and human viewpoint. And when you're operating on divine viewpoint, the people around you who are operating on human viewpoint will think you're a fool. They do not have the ability, they do not have the capacity to comprehend divine truth apart from regeneration. Being born again means God the Holy Spirit at the moment of faith faith alone in Christ alone creates a human spirit and simultaneously imparts that to to the new believer so that they are then alive spiritually. And then they can begin to understand spiritual truth. But until then, their only solution is human viewpoint thinking. Now, the Bible makes this distinction. Divine viewpoint is wisdom. Not just an academic wisdom or or a wisdom divorced from application, but a wisdom that is particularly suited to application. In the Greek, it's called epinosis doctrine. Backing up to our illustration of Operation Z here. Doctrine, once it's understood, becomes academic knowledge in the mind. And then when you believe it, God the Holy Spirit transfers it to the right lobe, the cardia, the heart. And there it is stored and you begin to circulate that doctrine in your soul as you think about it consciously in meditation. And God the Holy Spirit makes it clear to you and makes its application clear to you so that you can apply it to your life and produce something that demonstrates skill. It has something of an aesthetic quality, building something attractive and beautiful that glorifies the Lord. Okay, with that for a background, let's go back to our passage in James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Wisdom. Let him, if any of you lacks wisdom. Now what underlies all human viewpoint systems of thought is arrogance. And arrogance in the Bible is defined as hostility to God and destroys all Divine viewpoint wisdom. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 13.10, Through presumption comes nothing but strife, but with those who receive counsel is wisdom. Proverbs 23.23 shows you the priority you should place on learning Bible doctrine. Buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. Arrogance is the enemy of all divine viewpoint. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed. He is hostile to. He is at war with the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And James 4.6 repeats this. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, that is the Old Testament, God is hostile to the arrogant but gives grace to the humble. So the issue here is we're going to have wisdom. We must have humility. Humility is defined as teachability. Recognizing your limitations, your role and place in God's plan, and that you are going to submit yourself to the teaching of God's Word. So with an attitude of humility, you recognize your need for wisdom to apply to the tests of faith. So we come to James 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Now this is a, the word for ask here, let him ask, is a present active imperative. It doesn't say, if any of you lacks wisdom, have you thought about prayer? Maybe that's an option. It doesn't say that. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, pray. Now. No option. No alternative. Pray. Let him ask of God. 
who gives. Now here we have a phrase. In the Greek it is looks like this. To didantes. Didantas. Now I'm going to give you a little grammar so you can help understand some of the things I say about grammar up here. When you have a verb, this is a not a finite verb but a participle, you have a tense. In this case, you have a uh, present tense. You have a voice. And it can be an active voice or it can be a passive voice. And you have a mood. In this case, instead of a mood, you have a participle. Now, a participle expresses something uh, either about the verb or if it has an article. This is the Greek article. This is T-O-U-D-I-D-O-N-T-O-S. It's a genitive ending of the verb didomi, D-I-D-O-M-I, which means to give or to grant or to bestow. Now, in this little phrase, we can see the importance of grammar in understanding the Word of God. As an adjectival participle, because it has this little word here, which is the definite article, T-O-U, it tells us that this is an adjectival participle. That means it's going to modify a noun. Remember, way back when you were in school, some of us, that's harder than others, An adjective is what modifies a noun, and an adverb is what modifies a verb. And an adjective tells us something about the noun it modifies. So this is modifying a noun, and the noun that it modifies is the noun theos for God. So it's going to tell us something about the character and the person of God. He is the God who gives. The basis for all of God's grace, and this, is, this verb, whenever you see give related to God, you ought to immediately think about God, about grace. Didomi relates to God's grace policy. That God gives freely without asking for anything in return. The basis for God's giving is His matchless, infinite love, which is based solely on who He is. has nothing to do with who you are. You know, I don't want to burst any bubbles, but you've never done anything and you can never do anything to impress God. Never will we do anything that makes God sit up and take notice of just how sincere and wonderful and spiritual we are. For one thing, God's not going to learn anything He hasn't known for billions and billions of years. But God's not impressed by us and our ability. God is impressed by us and our dependence upon His ability. So, the word didomi, describing God, reminds us of His grace. That everything is based on who God is and what He did on the cross. His grace policy throughout human history. And it is never based on who you are or what you do. That is legalism. The second thing we see here is that in terms of it being a present tense, That means it's talking about, usually in terms of time, something that continues in present time. Now, a present tense can have several different emphases or nuances of meaning, different shades of meaning. One form of the present tense is called a gnomic present. Gnomic. Now, gnomic refers to a statement of a general and timeless fact. So a present tense is used to express a statement of a general timeless fact that is, throughout, that is always true. So the, pre, the timeless fact here that God is always a God who gives. This is a timeless principle about the character of God. God always gives. This always happens. God always operates on the principle of grace. There never is a time when God doesn't operate on the principle of grace. God will never say, okay, I've been treating you in grace for the last 30 years, but you just keep screwing up and sending this same sin. So that's it, buddy. No more grace. You're never going to run out of God's grace. You can't outperform the grace of God. You can't abuse the grace of God to the point where He's not going to be gracious anymore. It's impossible because God's grace 
is infinite. God is the God who gives. This is a timeless fact. It's a gnomic present. It's an active voice. Active voice means that the subject performs the action. Passive voice is the subject receives the action. If you say, John hit the ball, John's the subject, the verb is hit. John is the subject performs the action of hitting. If you say, John was hit by the ball, that's a passive verb. Passive verb means that the subject receives the action. That means that John, rather than hitting the ball, well, he gets knocked out and gets a black eye or a bloody nose or something. So God, so, so God performs the action here. God is the one who gives, not man. It's not related to man at all. It is related totally to God, who is the one who performs the giving. And then the adjectival participle tells us it's descriptive of God. So what have we learned here? We have learned that it is the character of God to always give. It's based on who He is and not on who we are or what we have done. So we are to ask of God who gives to all men. Now, how does He give? This adjectival participle then becomes the subject of an adjectival clause. The subject is the God who gives. The God who would be the subject, gives would be the verb in this clause, and how does he give? Well, this is described by two adverbs. The first adverb is a word that occurs only once in the Greek text. It's hoplos. H-A-P-L-O-S. And this word means generously, bountifully, lavishly, without restriction, with abundance. So how does God give? He gives abundantly. He gives freely. He gives generously. He gives bountifully, above and beyond. God is not a cheapskate. God does not just give you barely enough. God gives generously. This is the God who gives to all men, first of all, generously, and secondly, and this is important for a lot of people because they're so, they beat up on themselves so much when they fail that they think that, well, Lord, I just keep failing. I keep, if I come and ask you for something, you're just going to get mad. You're going to, it's tiresome, Lord. For me to keep, I'm afraid you're just going to lose patience. Well, not, that's not what this says. It says without reproach. And the Greek word here is the negative, meaning no. The negative plus the word anadizo. The, the adverbial form, the adverbial participle of anadizo. O-N-E-I-D-I-Z-O. And this word means no regrets, no criticism, no manifestation of displeasure or regret at the giving of a gift. That's what anadizo means. It means that, that God is not going to say, you've asked, I've given it, and you dropped the ball. I, pay attention this time. God's not going to reproach you because this is the 15th time you've gone through this test and failed because you're not listening in Bible class. God's not going to say, okay, now you're praying about it. The pastor's been teaching this for the last 20 weeks. You never go on Wednesday night. So, get with it. Show up at church. Then maybe I'll help you solve the problem. Now, in one sense, that's true. Because if you show up at Bible class, you'll learn the doctrine, which you'll need to apply to solve the problem. But God's not going to say, look, buddy, you're not going to class. No answers. No reproach. No criticism. God's not going to come at you and express His displeasure over your failure. He's not going to call you a dummy or something worse. Let him, uh, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask from the source of God who gives graciously to all men generously and without rebuke, regret, or criticism. And what? The future passive indicative of didomi again. There we have that grace verb. 
D-I-D-O-M-I. Now let's apply what we just learned. Parse the verb. It's a future passive indicative. The future means that it's it's going to happen in the future. Future to the act of asking. So you ask and future to that or subsequent to that, God will answer. Passive, it will be done. It is the unstated subject. It will be done. The prayer request is acted upon by God. It will be done. God will answer. It will be done. And the indicative mood in the Greek is the mood of certainty on the mood of reality. That you can count on it. This is a promise from God that you should memorize and store in your soul. So that when you encounter trials, you can apply this and say, Lord, I'm lacking the doctrine I need. You've promised that you will give it to me generously and without reproach. But the basis of that is faith. And we'll get into that in verse 6 next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we are overwhelmed by Your grace that it is not anything that we have done, uh, who we are, or anything that impresses You, but out of Your goodness, out of Your character, who You are and what You have done, You have provided such incredible material as what we find in the Scriptures to teach us how to live. I'm reminded of what Peter said when so many disciples had left and The Lord asked Peter, why don't you leave? And Peter said, well, Lord, you have words of life. These are words of life. And so we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us. That we can apply them to pursue that life, that abundant life that you have for us. That you might be glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. One announcement.